You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. Our last two episodes focused on the Biden administration's foreign policy towards China and Russia, respectively. So today we're turning to the Middle East and Iran in particular. I actually think about China, Russia, and Iran as the three most challenging bilateral relationships that any administration faces. And so it's very appropriate that we should be tackling Iran today. My guest today is a familiar guest for World Class, Dr. Abbas Malani. He's the Hamid and Christina Mogadam Director of Iranian Studies here at Stanford, an affiliate at the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law at FSI. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thanks, Abbas, for joining the podcast again. It's my pleasure, as always. So we have a new administration, and we have an old Iran. (laughs) We have an old familiar problem with respect to Iran. Tell me about the interplay, about what is going on inside Iran, perspectives on the idea that there might be a nuclear deal between the United States and again with Iran, and how should the Biden administration approach joining or not joining the old Iran nuclear deal that President Obama originally signed into? You know, I think the fact that you had the two earlier discussions on China and Russia, and now on Iran, underscores the fact that I really think these three issues are interconnected. You cannot solve unilaterally and you need to understand them as a package of a problem because Iran very clearly is trying to use the China card, is very much trying to use the Russia card to create a wedge with Europe, to create a wedge between Europe and the United States, and to give itself a much easier chance to negotiate this. I think the Iranian domestic situation is uh, in a truly a moment of uh, composite crisis because the economy is very much in shambles because of corruption, because of incompetence, and because of sanctions, because of uh, extreme sanctions that have been put on the regime. They have uh, simply augmented the problems that existed, structural problems that existed. Uh, There is no easy path to the salvation of the economy on the horizon. There is also a remarkable level of tension within the regime between the reformists who are increasingly marginalized and the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, who are openly uh, angling to take over the government as the next president. The last elections were probably into the parliament in Iran, were probably the most dismal in terms of the public participation. There's a question of succession, who should succeed Khamenei. There is an open warfare in a sense about this. Just to remind everybody, he's the supreme leader, right? He's the supreme leader, and he has been the supreme help, leader right? for 33 Ali Khamenei. And there are two candidates vying, I think, for his succession. One is his son, who, who Moshtaba, that is becoming increasingly assertive in the public domain. He was very much someone in the shadow. And then there is a gentleman called Raisi, who is the head of the judiciary, and he clearly is behaving as if he is... Uh, the next anointed supreme leader, Khamenei, is clearly sick. There is open talk about his disease. And in one sense, in terms of U.S.-Iran relations, if he does pass from the scene, that might be an opening because he has been singularly, intransigently anti-American from the days he was a minor cleric to his entire 42-year career. 
Well, let's dig deeper, both domestically and you mentioned the China and Russia cards. I want to come back to that, but let's dig first deeper domestically. So tell us a little more about the economic crisis. It's worse than ever before. And if so, what does that mean in terms of regime stability or instability? I think the economy is the worst that I have certainly seen it. It is far worse than it was, at, uh, for example, during the war with Iraq. I lived in Iran at the time. I think the economy right now, the revenue is literally gone from maybe a hundred billion dollars to maybe $20 billion. Their ability to sell oil has gone to less than $2 billion, literally the last year. There has been a massive flight of capital through corruption. The regime itself talks about $20 billion having left the country over the last year alone. There is unemployment double digit, inflation double digit. There is no possibility of bringing in foreign investment in the energy sector that they desperately need. Tourism has, uh, is non-existent. There are strikes, labor strikes, labor strife over the country. The, the, and adding all to all of these is the problem of uh, Corona. Iran probably has, next to the United States and a couple of other countries, probably the worst re record in coping with Corona in terms of the number of death, the number of people who have it. And Khomeini, the Supreme Leader, decided three weeks ago unilaterally that Iran is not going to import any vaccines from Europe. And the only vaccine that they're going to be purchasing is Sputnik. Not right. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, with no expertise and, you know, the equivalent of Iran's uh, scientific community all came out against them, virtually all. But that's the nature of authoritarian regimes. Right. What Mr. Putin says goes in Russia, what Mr. Khamenei says goes in Iran. Right. So that would make me think that they would be desperate to do a deal with the Biden administration because of sanctions. But my guess is it's more complicated than that. Tell me how you think that domestic political situation affects their calculus about re-entering into a negotiation with the Biden administration. To me, it was very clear from the moment that the elections were called in favor of the Biden administration, and long before the ex-president accepted it, the Iranian regime accepted the results and began to behave as if there will be a Biden administration. And they were hoping for a quick turnaround and a quick end to the sanctions. Right. They were under this illusion that uh, Biden is going to come in and overnight is going to overturn the sanction regime and open the floodgates to funds. And I never thought this would happen. I never thought this would be a wise policy for the United States, even a possible policy for the United States. And because of the way they have behaved on the nuclear deal in the past, the minute they thought they would be negotiating with the Biden administration for a nuclear deal, they began to create realities on the ground. They began to export enrichment. They began to add new centrifuges. They just did something that Europe announced it's a dangerous breach of their agreement. They created metal uranium that has no peaceful purpose. These are very much in line with the way they have done it in the past. They create reality on the ground and then they negotiate. I think they overplayed their hand. I think they have clearly overplayed their hand. They are desperate for a deal, but they want a bigger deal 
more release of funds than I think the uh, Biden administration is willing or capable or should uh, let them have. Interesting. So what would you recommend they do vis-a-vis this part of the negotiations? And then I want to talk about what you think they should do in terms of Iranian influence in the region and then about democracy. But let's take them in sequence or you can bundle them all together because they're the three big buckets, of course. I think what President Biden announced makes a great deal of sense to me. He said, we want to go and have a deal, but we don't want to have any deal. And we need to consider the new realities on the ground. And he says we need to take into consideration the regime's regional activities. And he's added much to my delight, and I think to your delight, said human rights is going to be also a part of the package. Right. This notion that human rights is a separate package and never be discussed, I think was a wrong policy. And I think this combination, the notion that we shouldn't negotiate with this regime, I think is a false premise. You and I have written about this with Larry Diamond for almost 20 years. You should negotiate, but negotiate from a position of rationality, from a position of clear stating what is expected, what is possible, what is permissible, and uh, combining it always, as you keep saying, in the morning, discuss nuclear, in the afternoon, human rights. I don't think I said that. I think you're quoting our friend who just passed away recently, George Schultz, which was one of the, the conditions that when he was negotiating with the Soviets, he used to always say, a very wise man, very good to, to us all. And it's a, a great loss to our country and the world, right? Uh, frankly, yeah. we lost George. I do remember him writing about that in his book, but let, let's dig into that a little more, Abbas. Like, what do you want to see from the Biden administration on the democracy front? So they've said the right things. I agree with you, by the way, and that's welcome. What else can be done on that front? And, and here are, I'm interested in also, you mentioned earlier, how the Russians and Chinese are trying to play a wedge game with us and the Europeans. Is that true also when it comes to these conversations about democracy and human rights? I think it's very much the appeal of China and Russia, because China and Russia, when they do engage with the Iranian regime, they're never worried about human rights. Not only they're not worried about human rights, the Iranian regime also returns the favor. Iran being an Islamic society has never said a word about the almost genocidal activities of China against its Muslims or against Putin's mass murder of Chechens, Muslims. So the regime returns the favor. You keep quiet about my breaches of human rights. I keep quiet about yours. In terms of the U.S. policy, I think the United States should clearly declare categorically that it is not in the business of regime change. Regime change is a business of the Iranian people. The U.S. has no business changing the regime in Iran. But the U.S. recognizes the desire clearly manifest in people, commensurate with international communities, and the way it treats its people, the way it treats women, the way it treats dissidents, the way it treats lawyers, the way it treats dual citizens, the way it goes into Europe, into Turkey, into United Arab Emirates and executes dissidents, grabs them and takes them to Iran. These are not acceptable. There is a price to be paid, but we are not in the business of changing the regime. We understand people want to change it and we are on the same page of history with them. Let's bounce back to that on the domestic side. You mentioned already the economic conditions. You mentioned that there are more strikes. 
Tell us a little bit more about what you see happening in civil society in Iran today. Is there opposition movements? We've seen massive protests in Belarus recently. We've seen big protests in Hong Kong the year before, even Russia after the arrest of Mr. Navalny. We've seen protests. What's going on within the opposition inside Iran today? If you look at the measure of how people are in the streets, people are not in the street right now, but right. they have been in the past year and a half, massively about a year and a half ago, and the regime uh, literally killed at least several hundred, by some accounts, 1,500, and wow. still has 7,000 people arrested from that period. I did not I, realize I, it was that big. 7,000 people are still under arrest. 7,000 people are still under arrest. And at least, I mean, I think the conservative number is several hundred. More possible number is about 1,500 that were executed in the streets. But there is massive, if you look for indications of dissent, indications of opposition. Women, for example, are fighting a remarkable civil disobedient movement of resistance to force hijab in every city every day in Iran. They pay the price for it. They go to prison. They get beaten up. Sometimes there are acids put on their faces. That's resistance. That's as defined as the exactly. Belarus demonstrations. Right. There are acts of uh, defiance by the labor union, not union, by the labor movement. And unfortunately, there's also defiance in terms of people becoming depressed. That's not a form of resistance, but it's the result of unhappiness with the regime. There's also dissent within the regime. There is an increasing effort to consolidate power by the IRGC, and there is open discussion of this being a new kind of military dictatorship that should be resisted. All of these indicate to me that there is tumult and turmoil on the horizon. And given those conditions, what's the role of the Iranian diaspora you said very clearly that the United States government should not be advocating openly for regime change. Is there a different role that the Iranian diaspora, including you, by the way, should be playing in policy formulation, both in the United States, but also in terms of trying to influence events inside Iran? When we talk about Iranian diaspora, we need to distinguish between two different groups. One are organized minority, well-oiled by different kinds of monies. Sometimes they get money from the State Department to attack you and I. Sometimes they take, literally, we have to be honest. Sometimes they take money from Saudi Arabia to attack anybody who says anything that is different from that particular line. And sometimes they are very much advocating the regime line. The Iranian soft power in the United States, in academia, in media, is not to be ignored. They're less powerful in Europe, but they're very much powerful. So these are, I think, minor but important trends. The great bulk of the Iranian diaspora is a very important, particularly in the US, is a very important economic power, intellectual power, managerial power. They want the best for Iran. They don't want the United States to go change Iranian regime. They don't need the State Department money to fund their activities. They themselves fund programs, Stanford, in UCLA, in Harvard, in many places. They, I think, need to be at the table as part of this discussion, sort of the kind of a, what 
Clifford Geertz calls native local knowledge, that local knowledge that is not ideological, is not trying to sell the United States an idea that helped me come to power, helped me overthrow this regime, but rather say, this is what we think the lay of the land is. This is what we hope Iran can be tomorrow. This is how we can contribute to this process. That I think is a winning combination. Really interesting. And it's really interesting, especially the different groups that you described. There's not one Iranian diaspora. I think that's really important for our listeners to understand. Last question. I know we're running out of time, but I want to come back to the region in those three buckets, right? There's the bilateral nuclear piece. There's the human rights piece. And then there's the regional dimension. You know, if I were looking at Biden policy, not rhetoric, but actual policy, one of the most dramatic things they've already done is say that they're not going to support the Saudi war in Yemen. And they're even, I think, uh, announcing today, if I'm not mistaken, that they're lifting a terrorist designation of one of the groups in Yemen so that humanitarian assistance can be provided there. As you well know, there's been a kind of proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the region, including in Yemen. How is the regime reacting to these policy shifts by the Iranian regime? How is society, to the best that you know, that you can uh, see what's going on there? And then, what is your recommendation for what should happen going forward with respect to the Biden strategy within the region in the future? I think a change of policy in Yemen is absolutely necessary. It was absolutely shameful to allow Saudi Arabia to do in Yemen what they have done. It was detrimental to Saudi Arabia, costing them tens of billions of dollars. I remember a conversation you and I had with Colleen Kale when he was here. He was saying, Saudi Arabia spends tens of billions of dollars. Iran ten spends tens of millions of dollars and uh, spoils the game for them. Aside from the humanitarian crisis, it was also a winning game for the Iranian regime. So to me, that was a very wise decision. And the decision to tell Saudi Arabia, you don't have a green light to do anything you want. The fact that there are already some human rights activists released in Saudi Arabia is a wonderful, I think, indication that U.S. words matter in the region. That's a great point. That's a really great point. Yeah. I think the reality on the ground is that the regime has changed the reality on the ground. Saudi Arabia now is a close ally of Israel. United Arab Emirates is a close ally of Israel. Kuwait and Bahrain and Morocco have all established diplomatic ties with Israel. That has created a new reality on the ground. I think the United States, cognizant of this, can play the diplomatic card. Iran, the other aspect of the reality on the ground, I think, is that Iran is now more isolated in the region than it ever was. Its most important proxies in Iraq, in Lebanon, are isolated. I mean, I think politically the Hezbollah is probably now weaker than it was five years ago. Shiites in Iraq, the ones supported by the Iranian regime, are more isolated, are more estranged from Ayatollah Sistani than they were. These are the important aspects of the geo-reality, geo-strategy of the region that can help a successful U.S. regional policy. To go back to the beginning, Russia and China are very much playing this game as well and are establishing ties with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates, with Israel. They had ties with Israel. So it's becoming a very complicated landscape. 
It sounds incredibly complicated, but also very dynamic. It doesn't sound very settled, which means we're going to have to have you back, Abbas. But thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know your thoughts. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening now to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.